Well, good morning. This mic is a little bit different than that one. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, my name is Doug Horton. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest Bible Church. I'm over the music and youth ministries. Y'all have to pray for your youth pastors because right now there are virtually thousands of youth pastors preaching because there are virtually thousands of senior pastors taking this week off. (laughs) So Lance is our senior pastor. He usually is here and he reluctantly will take some time off once or twice a year. And when he does, I get to preach. And so Lance has been in the book of Luke. We will not be in the book of Luke. Today we'll be in Galatians. So we'll please turn to the book of Galatians chapter five, hoping to get through the whole chapter this morning. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul around the year 49 AD. It wasn't written to the city of Galatia. Um, Galatia is an area, a region. It's um, what we think of as modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. So when Paul was going through on his missionary journeys, there was a bunch of cities in that region. And when he was teaching and preaching and establishing these churches, uh, he was, uh, you know, Establishing these churches there, and this is the book that was sent to those churches. It was like a, it was a letter written to be circulated to those churches. Galatians is also um, associated with uh, what kicked off the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was studying the book of Galatians, teaching it and studying it and preaching through it. And when he realized there's a lot of inconsistencies with what the church was doing at the time and what the scriptures were saying. And so he wrote these 95 theses and hammered them to the door and thus kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And um, the church kind of looked at Martin Luther and said, yeah, we know we're doing all that extra stuff. We know that that there's Jesus and Mary and that there's, you know, scripture and tradition and the Apocrypha and what the Pope says. And we know that there's faith and you have to do these certain things at these certain times and adding all this extra stuff. We know we're doing all that. Martin Luther said, well, that ain't right. It's not what the scripture says. And so they were adding to it. And um, Galatians is uh, the book that's associated with that. So it's a wonderful book. The Reformation distilled um, rather crudely is faith alone and Christ alone because scripture says that. Scripture alone says that. Faith alone and Christ alone because that's what scripture says alone. You don't need Christ alone and something else. You don't need faith and something else. You don't need scripture and something else. Paul was dealing with the apostle. Paul was dealing with that here in Galatia. Martin Luther was dealing with it back in the 1500s and we are dealing with it even today. And so I think it's a wonderful book. Um, Like I said, we're going to try to get through the whole chapter. So let's get into it. Galatians chapter five, verses one and two. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And what is Paul talking about here? Like I said, when Paul was going through these missionary journeys, he was establishing these churches. And the first place he would go to when he would get to a new city was the synagogue. There's a lot of Jews there and the Jews understood the Old Testament. And so the apostle Paul would tell them, hey, that Messiah you've been waiting for, he's here. It's Christ. And when those Jews would accept Christ, they became Christians. And Paul said, oh, this is great. And he established a church and he would move on, such as a missionary journey is. 
When you're done establishing the church, you move on and establish another one. Well, as soon as he would leave, sometimes these uh, Gentiles, and Gentiles are those, anyone who's not a Jew, Gentiles would hear about Christ, and they would say, who's this Jesus guy? And those Jews that were remaining would say, oh, he's this great guy, he's the, the promised Messiah. And the Gentiles would say, well, we want to accept Christ too. And they say, hey, but first you have to become a Jew. First you have to become a Jew. Then you become a Christian. And these guys were called Judaizers. And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can have Christ and you have to be circumcised. You can have faith and you have to do all this and such. So Paul hears about this and he says, no, 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 no. The gospel that I gave you, the true gospel, faith alone and Christ alone, because scripture alone says it. And then you would have someone come along and pervert it. These Judaizers. So Paul's writing and he's saying, no, no, no. So how do you become a Jew? We have to get circumcised. And that's what he's saying here. He's addressing it. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ is no benefit to you. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Now, you may have heard this before, you may not have, but there are two ways to get to heaven. That's right, two ways. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, and that's true. The other way to get to heaven is you have to be perfect. You have to obey every law. You can't sin. You can't have one outburst of, you lose your self-control. Not one outburst of anger. Not one moment of lust. Not one moment where you're not patient. You have to be perfect. You just be perfect. Then you get to heaven. Sort of the back door. The problem is, we all know we're not perfect. Okay? Don't look left. Don't look right. Stay with me. Stay right here with me. We are not perfect. As a matter of fact, we're born in opposition to the Lord. We're born. We inherit it. We inherit, we inherit our sin from our moms and our dads and their moms and dads and so on and so forth, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world. And every one of their descendants, us included, is born in opposition to God. If you don't believe me, go volunteer in the nursery. You will never, ever have to teach a class on selfishness. Today, kids, we're going to learn how to cut in line. Today, we're going to learn how to lie. Right? We don't have to teach kids that. Why? Because they already know how to do it. They already know how to lie. They already know how to cut in line. They already know how to hit. They already know how to, to keep things. What's the first word kids usually learn? Is mommy or daddy the second one? Mine. And we continue to say mine all the way until we meet Christ, hopefully. Mine. It's not even ours. It's, you know it's not theirs. You, the baby sees keys to a car. Mine. Those are mine. My keys. My food, my everything, right? It's in our nature. And we know we are not perfect. But there was one perfect man. There was one who was allowed to go in that back door. And his name was Jesus. And he came and he died for our sins. And his perfect life led to a perfect sacrifice. So that we could go in and have perfect relationship with the Father for all eternity. 
Romans 10.9, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, class, we will be saved. We will be saved because of the one perfect man. And we know that we're not perfect. And we know that when we mess up, because we will, God has given us something called apologies, forgiveness, confession, that we can be restored to God because we know we're going to sin. So we look at God and we say, Lord, I'm so sorry about this. I messed up. You confess, you repent, and then you move on. And you keep on. And you keep going. Not because you think you're earning your salvation. The Christian doesn't obey because we think we can earn our way into God's good graces. We don't do that. Obedience is a loving response for what has already been done for us. Obedience is a loving response for what has already been done for us. So we try to obey as best we can, and we try our best. And then when we mess up, we confess and we repent. But we know that we cannot earn our salvation. There's going to be a lot of talk about freedom here. Verse 1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And the world, we know, has a different connotation for what freedom is than what the Christian or what the Bible believes freedom is. The world would have you believe that freedom is something that you can do and do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. And like I said... um, well, they'll say that Christians are restricted. Christians can't do all that fun stuff. Christians can't, you know, drink, cuss, or smoke, or date girls who do. And they're not allowed to do all that stuff. Well, the problem is Christians happen to do all that stuff as well. And like I said, when we do, we have this wonderful thing that God has given to us in repentance and confession. And so we make it right with the Lord out of obedience, out of loving obedience. Because we know we cannot earn our salvation. Paul talks about this again in verse 3 and 4. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So if you're saying that you want circumcision as a means of salvation, well, then you better be ready to take on the entire law and be perfect. That's the only other way into heaven outside of Christ. You better be ready to take on the whole law. Verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. What do you need Christ for? You could do it on your own. You could follow the law. You've been severed from Christ. You've been cut off. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Grace is a beautiful word. It's God's unmerited or undeserved favor upon you. You know, God favors you. But if you can do it on your own, oh, by all means, what do you need that grace for? What do you need God's grace for? You go ahead and do it on your own. You earn your own salvation. Go ahead. See how that works for you. Verse 5. For we, Paul says, if you have the NASB, for we through the Spirit. Who's we? That's us. That's Christians. For Christians through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
So this, this is kind of a confusing verse, I think, when you really start digging into it. For Christians, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. I've, I've said this analogy before in the youth group, and I may have said it from here, but I'm going to tell it again because it's so good. There's a shepherd that's got 1,000 sheep. And the season of uh, the sheep being born comes. And during this birthing process, all these mothers giving birth to their lambs, some of the mothers will die in this process of giving birth. And also, some of the lambs will die. So when the mothers die, there's these orphan lambs. And then sometimes the lambs will die, and you'll have moms who just gave birth, and they don't have a baby lamb. So the good shepherd comes along, he has to match them up. He's got to match up the orphans that are alive to the mothers who are alive who don't have any baby lambs. You understand? Now the problem is the mother will only give nourishment. The mother will only allow a baby lamb to approach her if it's her lamb. How does she know it's her lamb? It's the smell. She smells that lamb. No, you're not family. No milk for you. No nourishment for you. No protection for you. No love for you. No kindness for you. I don't know you. So the shepherd is kind of gruesome. He has to skin the dead lamb. And he covers the orphan with the skin. The skin of the dead lamb of the mother is taken off and covers the orphan. So the orphan is brought to the mother. The mother says, oh, I know you. Your family. Come, get love, get nourishment, get protection, get affection. So also, when we go to God, he smells us and smells the stench of our sin upon us, the death of sin upon us. It is so rank to him, he says, you cannot be in my presence. Your sin is so grotesque, you cannot be around me. The whole of the Old Testament is a picture of how distant we are from God. If you remember the holy of holies, then the holy place, then the outer, then the outer one, and then the nation, so on and so forth, only one man a year allowed to be in God's presence. It's because the stench of our sin. Christ comes, covers us with his blood. And we go to God and he says, oh, I know you, your family. Come. Come get nourishment. Come get love. Come get affection. Picks you up. Kisses you. I love you, my child. And it's not because of anything that we have done. No work of ours could get us into there, into that room, into close to Christ and in close to God the Father. No, nothing we could have done. It's only the work of Christ and his righteousness. His righteousness upon us. Romans 13, 14 says, we wear Christ like a robe. We put on his righteousness Isaiah 61.10, we put righteousness on like a jacket. And when we walk into God's presence, he says, oh, I know you. You smell like my son. Come, come. 
your family. Come and get nourishment. Come and have eternal life with me. I love that. For Christians, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, uncircumcision means anything. You, what are you going to You can't do anything. But faith working through love. Verse 7, Paul sort of changes tone here. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. This didn't come from the Lord. Who, who have you been listening to? You know, Paul, when he would go and establish these churches, he would view these churches as sort of his spiritual children. And him as a father, a spiritual father. And he would look at these churches and say, who's, who's been messing with you? Who's been lying to you? And I tell you every... Dad and mom in here, if you had knew someone was lying to your kids and telling you something different from what you were telling them, you'd want to you'd ask the same question too. Who have you been talking to? Who's been telling you this nonsense? Who's been persuading you to something else and lying to you? And so Paul's upset about it, rightfully so. And I'll tell you this. If you ask a Catholic or Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness. You ask a Catholic, who, who taught you? Who, who told you that you needed to pray to Mary? You ask a Mormon, who told you about this Joseph Smith character? You ask a Jehovah's Witness, who told you only 144,000 allowed in heaven? Who told you that stuff? They would say, well, someone taught me that. You could say, well, you won't find it in the Bible because it's not there. You can look all day, all eternity long, you'll never find Joseph Smith in there or pray to Mary. You have to be taught this stuff. You have to be brought away. You have to have the Bible and. If you're a Mormon, you have to have the Bible and the Book of Mormon. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you have to have the Bible and all their Watchtower stuff. If you have a Catholic, you have to have the Bible and all the Pope and all the rest of it. You see, Scripture and. Faith and Christ and something else. It's a perversion. And Paul's wondering, who's, who's persuading you? Who's drawing you away? I'll tell you this. I'll never be worried. I will never be worried about someone in their theology. If you say, here's the Bible. You read this. Cover to cover. Uh, Rob Bishop was talking uh, about the Sunday school class. He was encouraging everybody, it's a new year starts tomorrow, let's start reading that Bible. You read the Bible cover to cover, you're going to, if you might get to a passage that's going to be confusing, keep reading. Bible usually interprets itself. Keep reading. And I promise you, you won't come to this crazy stuff. You won't, you won't end up praying to Mary. You won't, you don't never need to know about Joseph Smith, all this nonsense. Scripture alone. And it points you to faith alone in Christ alone. You know, a funny thing about Christians, we like hearing the Bible. We like it. It, it, It's not normal. It's the Holy Spirit in you. Holy Spirit is in you and said, man, that's good stuff. That's good. Listen to that. That's good. So we like hearing about, we like hearing Preaching that's in the Bible. 
And when they're not in the Bible, you know it. You I don't, I don't like that. That's the Holy Spirit. I like that. There's Christians, we Christians are we're weirdos, okay? Here we go. Verse 9. <clears throat> Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, that's a great metaphor. A little bit of perversion can go a long way. Verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one. Oh, yeah. So he says, you stay in the word, faith alone, Christ alone. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. Don't allow these lies and this perversion, this perverted gospel to come in. But the one who's disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So it's like a good father saying, hey, whoever's been messing with you, God's going to get him. Verse 11, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? See, Paul's saying here, if I was still, if I was, if I was making it easy and I was preaching what everybody wants to hear and I was just tickling everybody's ears and not doing the true gospel, why am I still getting persecuted? I'm getting persecuted because I am preaching the, the true gospel and a lost world doesn't want to hear that. So the proof of me telling you the truth is my persecution is what he's saying. Verse 12, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Harsh words, a little bit of sarcasm, I think, but harsh words from Paul. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom. I just love that. For you were called, who is, who is you? Paul's talking about, he switches tone here again. He's not talking about those guys bringing the perversion. He's talking to the Christians. For you, Christians, were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't take advantage of God's good, great, God's good graces. I tell this to my kids all the time. Hey, I like spoiling you right up until you're spoiled. Then I don't want, I don't want to give you anything, right? Don't take advantage of God's good, God's good graces here. Do not turn your freedom into opportunity for flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is quoting Christ here, and Christ is quoting the Old Testament. But let's get some context we're going to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 22. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34. Matthew 22. We're going to be back in Galatians. Uh, so put your little uh, rope down and back in Galatians. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. Matthew chapter 22, there's a lot of people coming at Jesus trying to trick them. Trying to use the law to trick Jesus. Okay? Funny thing is, they don't know he's the author. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, uh, big surprise. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Heart, soul, mind. That is all interior. Heart, interior, soul, interior, mind, interior. So much of the Old Testament is exterior. God wrote his laws on stone tablets. 
New Testament, where does God write our, he writes the laws on what? Our hearts. Old Testament, exterior, New Testament, interior. That's how we kind of see that. But here, this is written in Deuteronomy. God always wanted to be God of the heart. This is talking about a personal relationship that you have with God the Father. That's a vertical relationship. You and God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Jesus says, verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. The second one is similar to the first. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, that's a horizontal. How you relate to those people that God has in your life. Neighbor back then was different than it is now. Neighbor back then was the people that you see every day. There were generations that lived uh, as neighbors. They didn't move around like we move around. I've had four or five neighbors uh, since we've moved into our house. I don't even know who moved in. Uh, someone moved in a while ago. I don't know. How long ago, Maggie? I, I don't know. They, I don't even know who they are. That's not what we're talking about here. Neighbors is the people that are in your life. Friends, family, people that you see. That's what we're talking about here. And so... The vertical is connected to the horizontal, and the horizontal connected to the vertical. God himself says, if you want to come worship me, and you bring your sacrifice to the altar, but you've got some beef with your neighbor, if you've got some sin you need to go deal with with your neighbor, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go make it right before you come and worship me. Before you worship me in your vertical, go make it right with your horizontal. And if you don't have a clear conscience between you and the Lord and you go and try to love on your neighbors and stuff, some hypocrisy in that as well. They're connected. But Jesus and Paul both recognize that for you to love your neighbor, for you to have a relationship with your neighbor, you have to have a relationship with yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all have a relationship with ourselves. We all have an inner dialogue. We all know what's going on in there to some degree or another. And we have to have a good relationship with ourselves so that we can have a good relationship with our neighbor. If you don't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of your neighbor? If you aren't doing healthy, good self-care, spiritually speaking, how are you going to care for your neighbor? It's our job as Christians to study ourselves. We have to look in. What are those things that are preventing us from being obedient? Where are we weak? When does sin happen? Does sin happen in the morning or in the evening? Does it happen when I get home from work? Or does it happen on the way home from work? On the drive? Do I, am I at more risk to temptation when I'm hungry? Am I at more risk at temptation if I haven't slept well? Do I lose my temper quick, more quickly if this and such happens? Those are questions, as Christians, we need to ask ourselves. It's our job to do that. 
looking at the grotesque mirror of the soul and attempting to deal with it is our job. It's heart work. It's hard work, but it's heart work. And it's not easy work. It's not easy. Nobody, nobody, wants, to, nobody wants to find out that they're uh, uh, controlling. Nobody wants to know how selfish they are. Nobody wants to know how narcissistic they are or greedy or jealous. Nobody wants to know that, that, that they're a gossip. If you don't believe me, have you ever tried to confront someone with their sin? Someone came to me a long time ago and said, you know, Doug, that's, what you're doing is very condemning. Your tone and the way you're saying it, whatever you're saying, they're not hearing you. But the way you say it is very condemning. You, are, you have condemnation in your, in your tone. I said, you have condemnation, condemnation in your tone and your whole family's dumb. <laughs> that's what happens when someone comes to tell you they turn the mirror of the soul and they force you to look. You don't want to see it. So what do you do? You get the claws out and you attack them. How much different would that be if I was doing that work myself? How much different would that be if I was doing the work myself? How much different would it be if you were doing the work yourself? Each one of us has a relationship with ourselves. And if we don't do that work, if we don't do that hard work, if we don't stare into the mirror of our souls and deal with that stuff, we are in danger of slavery, being held captive to those things. Someone who loses their temper and never spends any time trying to figure out why they lose their temper, there will forever be a slave to their temper. Slavery. We've been talking a lot about freedom. Galatians talks a lot about freedom. It's for freedom that Christ set us free, is what he says right there at the beginning of chapter 5. Well, let's turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 and following. There's a lot of twos. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2, 2. It's a little bit smaller book than Matthew's, so I'll give you some more time. 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul's talking to Timothy here. He says, flee the youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations or arguments, knowing that they produce quarrels for the Lord's servant or Christians. Christians. For Christians must not be quarrelsome. Christians must be kind to all, Christians must be able to teach, Christians must be patient when they are wronged, and Christians with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Who are in opposition? Who are those people who are in opposition? What are they in opposition to? They're in opposition to the truth. Those who are in opposition to the truth, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them, who is them? Those who are in opposition to the truth, grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of what? The truth. 
Those who are in opposition to the truth, Christians, it's our job with gentleness to present to them the truth. Why is it so important to tell people about the truth? Verse 26, that they, who is they, they are those who are in opposition, may come to their senses and listen to this, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, the trap of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. If someone takes you captive and forces you to do their will, that's slavery. That's slavery. If we are not doing the hard work, if we are not doing the hard work of staring into our souls and trying to figure out why we do what we do, why, why is this part of my life inconsistent? Why am I not being obedient here? If we are not asking ourselves those questions, you are in slavery. You don't, if you don't know why you do what you do, if you're blind to that, that's slavery. We got to dig in. We got to look. And it's tough work. When you turn the lights on, And all the ugliness is there. Nobody likes seeing that. Nobody, especially in themselves. Especially in ourselves. But if we aren't doing that, we're being held captive, y'all. And it's ugly. This kind of slavery comes in all different kinds of forms. Again, Rob touched a little bit on this earlier. Stress, anxiety, worry, fear, shame, our past, all of these things can lead to slavery. All of these things, if left unchecked, if left unchecked, can lead to slavery. And the only way the enemy can keep us in captivity is with lies. For us to continue on, like if you have someone who uh, can't control their temper and refuses to uh, see that, that they have an issue with that, they are closing their eyes to the truth, aren't they? They're closing their eyes to the truth. They are believing a lie. Oh, it's fine. It's okay. I'm not all that bad. And you're causing havoc in your family. Destruction. A, A wake of destruction because of your bad temper. Oh, it's fine. That's a lie. It's not fine. Christians aren't supposed to lose. They're not supposed to lose their self-control. We're going to find out later the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And if that's inconsistent, why are your eyes closed to that? Because you're believing a lie. How do we fight lies? You walk into a dark room and you want to see something. How do you fight that darkness? You walk over to the light switch. Turn it on. You fight darkness with light. You fight lies with what? Truth. John 17, 17. Jesus looks up at the Father. He's praying. And he says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You want to know what truth is? Right here. That's the truth. You want to fight lies? You want to come out of slavery? You want to come out of captivity? It's right here. 
You want to stay in captivity, by all means, continue to believe lies. You want to come out of it and you want to live in freedom? Get into the truth. Get into the word. The lies of worry. I know that something's a little bit abstract, so let's make it practical. The lies of worry can sound like this. A lot of us have been on vacation these past couple days, maybe a day here or a day there, maybe some longer than others, right? So you're on vacation, and you know that you've got to start work on Monday, Tuesday, whatever, right? And that's maybe five, six days away, and you're already thinking about going back to work. And you're already going, man, I got all these deadlines. As soon as I get back into work, I already know this, this guy's going to be on me, and they don't like me, and I sure don't like them. And now, and you, and you are reaching out into the future and grabbing those things and pulling them into your present, and they're robbing you of your present. And everybody around you is like, what's wrong with him? Like I said, that left unchecked can be a lifestyle of slavery. Also, it could be something in your past. You reach back there. Oh, man, I can't believe what I said. I sounded like such an idiot. I can't believe you. You replay all those conversations after you had a conversation, and no one else is doing it, just you. And you're reaching in the pack, and you're going back there, and you're worried about what you said and how you said it and all this stuff and how people are going to think about you. Another thing I found out is that sometimes people will step into someone else's head and look at themselves through someone else's eyes and then judge themselves with that person's voice. Oh, I know what he's thinking. I'm not going to, he already thinks, I, you know, this, that, and so on. Left unchecked, left unchecked. That is slavery. Trauma, not drama, trauma. If you have trauma in your past, something has happened to you, or you did something, or maybe something not, maybe it wasn't you, or maybe it was something that happened to you, maybe just something terrible happened, and you're unable to move past it because you don't want to look in the mirror of your soul and deal with it. Now, now you can't enjoy your present because you're stuck. Lies of shame. Guilt and shame are very closely related. So very quickly, guilt, guilt is something that you've done. Shame is who you are. So you got a little, you got a little Billy, six, seven years old, runs to the kitchen. It's, you know, 11 p.m. He runs to the kitchen. He reaches into the cookie jar. Mom and dad flick the lights on. Hey, we got you. You know, Billy has that, you know, rush of embarrassment. And he goes, man, you caught me. And mom and dad say, yeah, we know. You you thought you were being a ninja, but we heard everything, you know, as God blesses parents with good ears. And they say, that's what you did, and you know you're not supposed to do that. Those aren't your cookies. You have to go to bed. You're right. I'm sorry. I did that, and I'm sorry. Go to bed. That's guilt. That's good. That's healthy. You're supposed to feel bad about doing stuff that's bad. Same scenario. Billy reaches into the cookie jar. Mom and dad turn the light on. You little thief. You've always been a thief. You always will be a thief, and you're nothing but a low-down, dirty thief. That's shame. You're working on something, and you break it. You think, oh, this thing's broken because I'm broke. 
You don't think, oh, I broke this thing. I'm going to try to fix it. Guilt is something you've done. Shame is something you are. You walk in, oh, I just can't seem to get my room cleaned up. I'm, I'm such a mess. I'm a mess. I'm broken. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm insignificant. Lies. Lies. I told you we fight lies with the truth. Christ says your word is truth. How do we fight the lies of worry? Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. When you, are, when you start to project yourself out into the future, when you start looking at trying to reach into the past and pull that stuff in there, you say, man, I'm not supposed to be anxious. I got to stop doing that. I have a proclivity to do that, don't you, you tell yourself, because you're looking in the mirror of your soul and you're saying, I want to have a good relationship with myself so that I can have a good relationship with my neighbors. I want to be more available to myself so I can be more available to my neighbors. And even more importantly, unto the Lord. I don't want to be trapped in this slavery anymore. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Christ himself, in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about what you eat and what you drink and what you wear. That's what the pagans are all chasing after that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry. But you have to have the guts to look at yourself and say, that's something I struggle with. And then you could fight those lies with the truth. Fight those lies with the truth. What are the lies of shame sound like? Shame will tell you that you're worthless. That it's not worth it. And I'm here to tell you, you're made in God's image. You are an image bearer of God. You bear God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. You have value. You are not worthless. The lies of shame will tell you that you're broken. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says you are a new creation. You are not broken. Shame will tell you that you're insignificant, that you don't matter. Psalm 139, 14. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, every one of you. One of the worst ones is that you are alone. You're all alone, and no one cares. Hebrews 13, 5, God will never leave you or forsake you. And the worst one of all, you are unlovable. No one loves you. You are unlovable. Whatever has happened in the past, whatever, that ha that whatever happened in back then that made you, that, that with the trauma, whatever that might be, that has led you to believe that no one is going to love you, that you are unredeemable. Romans 5.8. <laughs> While we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us, that he sent his son to die for us. You are valuable. You are valuable. And you are lovable. And you are significant and you matter. And if we don't fight those lies with the truth, 
we are in danger of slavery and believing those things. And when we turn the truth into a lie and a lie into a truth, we're in some serious trouble, Romans 1 says. The work of the Christian is to continually remind themselves of the truth. It's almost like God knew that we were going to forget. So he says, don't forsake the gathering. Y'all got to meet. Keep meeting. Keep coming. Keep showing up. Keep getting reminded. Because we'll forget. And the lies will keep coming. What does the Bible say about uh, Satan? He's the father of lies. He will use lies to trap you and make you captive to do his will. But Christ has come to set us free. The whole story of the Exodus. He raises Moses up. They were captive. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And he raises up someone to come and sets them free. That's a small, that's what Moses does that in small, what Christ has done for us in large. Not physical freedom, but spiritual freedom. Real freedom is what Joel was reading. When we're free in Christ, we're free indeed. That's real freedom. So for us to love our neighbor well, we have to do work on ourselves, don't we? For God to be able to work in us and on us and through us, we have to do some hard work on our own, don't we? We have to do some healthy, good, spiritual self-care and care for ourselves so that we can be more available to our neighbors and ultimately more available to the Lord. The vertical and the horizontal. Let's get back to Galatians here. What do you have to offer Before we jump into 15, verse 15 of Galatians chapter 5, what do we have to offer someone? What do we have to offer our neighbor if we are not in the word? If we don't have the love of God within us and we are not digging in and doing this hard work, if if we don't have that, what do we offer our neighbors? We offer our neighbors ourselves, which is selfishness, greed, jealousy, all those things. And look at what it says here in verse 15, Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's what you offer your neighbor if you don't have Christ, if you don't have God's righteousness upon you. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. When you receive what Christ has offered in salvation, when you're a Christian, the deposit of that salvation is the Holy Spirit. He comes and dwells within you. And from that moment until the day you die is called the process of sanctification. And that Holy Spirit is at work in you, fighting, fighting for your righteousness, fighting for your obedience, fighting for your maturity. And Paul's saying, join the fight. Join that fight. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Pay attention when you are weak, when temptation comes upon you. When is that happening? Pay attention. Study yourself. And join the fight the Holy Spirit has been given to you to help you fight for your righteousness. 
Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So we, we're about to get into the fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits of the flesh. If you are not in the Word, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you're not being led by the Holy Spirit, what's the fruit of the flesh? Here we go. Fruit of the flesh. Verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I have forewarned you just as I have forewarned you. He says it twice. Oh, I've told you about this stuff. Believe me, I told you. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If there's a pattern of this in your life, it's time to look in the mirror. there's a pattern of this in your life, it's time to look in the mirror. Verse 22. When you are led by the Spirit, when you are fighting for the righteousness alongside the Holy Spirit of God who dwells richly within you, here's the evidence of it. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the one. Verse 24. This is the one where where Paul is hinting at this fight. Think of the Roman who was hammering the nail into Christ for that crucifixion. How hard were those hammer blows on those nails. Were they just, you know, little ding, 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 ding? Or was he really, was he really hammering? What does Paul say? Those who belong to Christ, crucify those fleshly desires. You root out the sin, look at the mirror of your soul, root that sin out, take it over to the cross and crucify it. Murder it. Kill it. And join the fight. Join the fight of the Holy Spirit. Don't stand there and tap. Tap, 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 tap. It takes a hammer fall, a heavy blow to kill those things off, and it's hard work. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. By the Spirit. There's another, in other words, put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to do it, do it. Now, one quick thing, and we'll wrap up. I know a lot of people, when they, get, when they start talking about the fruits of the Spirit, they'll, they'll have a moment. They'll have a moment where they, where they lose their temper, or they'll have a moment where they lose their patience. They'll have a moment... Where, where, where they'll, uh, uh, they, they won't have, they'll lose their joy. And they'll say, you know, Pastor, I, I, 
I just don't know if I'm saved because, you know, I, I, I lost my temper today or I, I did this today and I did that today. And there was a moment of it. And I said, listen, the God that we serve looks at generations. He's eternal. Very seldom are we going to find a moment by moment thing where God's all that concerned. He's eternal. In uh, what is it? Exodus 34, 6. He says he punishes the sins of the father of the father to the third and fourth generation. And we're worried about the moment. So what I want you to do is this. I want you to think of a 10-year plan. 10 years ago, unbeknownst to you, the Holy Spirit had a goal. 10 years ago. And the goal was that today you were going to review these fruits of the Spirit. So in these last 10 years, Christian, has, have you become more loving Has there been more joy in your life in these last 10 years? Is there more peace in your life? Are you more peaceful? Are you more patient? Are you more kind? Is goodness a part of your, more a part of your life now than it was 10 years ago? Are you more faithful now than you were 10 years ago? Are you more gentle? Are you more self-controlled? If the answer is yes, even in the slightest, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you are a Christian, you are saved. That's a deposit of the Holy Spirit within you. Don't, don't believe these lies that one moment can define your salvation. That's a lie. Faith alone in Christ alone, because it's what the scripture says alone. This is the truth. Stay and remain in the truth. Be diligent in the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us as a deposit of salvation in whom we have correction, conviction of our sins, and an urging unto righteousness through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word, Lord. Rob talked about it earlier um, in Psalm 119. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It gives us direction and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it cuts right to the issue of the heart, always the heart. We thank you for your word. But above all things, we thank you for Christ. For it is his sacrifice that offers us righteousness. We are covered in his blood. And in so doing, Lord, we are allowed in your presence to get nourishment, to get safety, to get love, to get acceptance, Lord. Your son is so good. So we say thank you above all things for your son, Christ. And so, Lord, we pray all this in your son's sweet name, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. And may his countenance be raised upon you and give you peace. Peace.